I tell you, that's awesome. You know, I know most of you just enjoyed that and didn't think a thing about it. I have run across a few people who say, is this all right to put Amazing Grace to those words? Did you know that Amazing Grace was originally a bar song? And John Newton, who was a slave trader and had been resisting the gospel and rebelling at God, got in a storm and it was so bad he thought his ship was going to go down. He had a whole load of slaves and he lashed himself to the mast so he wouldn't be blown overboard. And he cried out to God and God saved him. He, he came out with the words to Amazing Grace and put it to a bar song that he learned in, was it Scotland or England or someplace? And that's what that was. So anyway, people say, could you do that? Well, that's what Amazing Grace is. His gospel words put to a bar song. So how can you desecrate that? I've been ministering on the cross and just basically trying to get across. You know, a lot of the songs that we sang tonight was, were basically making the same point that Jesus paid it all. Sin has been destroyed. It's been broken. Jesus didn't pay a portion. He completely obliterated it. And any attempt to go back and mix the way it was under the old covenant with what Jesus did under the new covenant pollutes the whole thing. And we just need to completely understand that it is finished on the cross, that Jesus ended everything. And that your actions have nothing to do with God's love for you. He doesn't love you more if you act holy. He doesn't love you less if you act unholy. Does that mean that you should act unholy? No. Because you will love God less if you act unholy. Satan comes in and hardens your heart, and so there's reasons. But anyway, I've been really trying to emphasize this. I've used some scriptures, especially last night, that are just, I mean, pretty plain and pretty blunt about it, that everything is already accomplished. And I tell you, the body of Christ today needs a revelation of God's grace. As a whole, the church is not preaching grace. It's like David uh, said, you know, that he came out of the demon's den and somebody told him, you're going to hell and says that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news and it's not good news to tell somebody they're going to hell. Now it is true and there is a truth about it, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is talking about what Jesus did for us, how he completely paid the cost and how that through grace... We access what He did for us. It's all by the grace of God. That's the gospel. But it is true that there is a hell and that there are consequences for our sins. And so I'm going to do something tonight that I've never done. I've referred to this, but I've never done this. And I'm doing this specifically because when you preach on the grace of God and you really emphasize it the way Arthur did, the way that I've been emphasizing it, when you do this, people come up with all kinds of weird doctrines. And one of them is... uh, a belief that there's ultimate reconciliation, universalism, and all kinds of things. People preach that there is no hell, that this life is all that there is to it. They preach that a loving God would never send people to hell. It seems unfair that a God of love and grace, the way that we're discussing, would take people, and it doesn't matter how bad you are for 60 or 70 years, how could you justify punishing a person for millions of years? And people use this logic to say that there is no hell, 
that there is no consequences, that there is no afterlife. And, you know, I reject that. I know that there is a heaven and a hell. And yet, as I've dealt with some of these things and talked about it, it just dawned on me that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and I've never taught on hell. So I'm going to teach on hell tonight. I'm going to show you what the Word of God has to say about hell. And it'll fit perfectly with what I've said, especially last night. I was giving my personal testimony about how I had to understand how unworthy I was and how I was, my righteousness was like, my self-righteousness was like a filthy rag. And then when I saw the grace of God and I experienced this love from the Lord, I honestly believe that I appreciate the love and the mercy and the grace of God more than most people because I have seen myself worse than most people have seen themselves. You know, that Jesus said the same thing, that he that has been forgiven much loves much. He that has been forgiven loves little. And some people might think, well, you hadn't done the things that I've done. But I doubt very seriously if there is a person in this room that has been more convicted of your unworthiness and ungodliness than I have. I may not have done some of the things that you did, but I guarantee you I was in the presence of a holy God. I saw my unrighteousness and my unworthiness more than I think most people have ever seen. And because of that, I have embraced and appreciated and love what God does for me, I think, more than most people do. And so I want to share some things with you tonight about hell and show you what we've been redeemed from. And I think that if you understood how holy and how just God is and how that there had to be a payment for our sins. Again, I could, I could set this up and spend all night talking about this and never get to what I'm wanting to talk about, so I'm just going to say this quickly. But most people haven't understood how pure and how holy God is and how that human beings totally, totally, totally messed up what God intended us to do. And we don't understand the degree of offense that it was. This is no small thing. When the Bible says that He's forgiven our sins and He cast them into the sea and it's a sea of forgiveness and they're as far as the east is from the west, some people just say, well, that happened because it must not have been that bad and God just decided I'm going to quit imputing this. No, God is holy. And I guarantee you, sin was such an offense, it had to be judged. And the payment for sin is death. In the day that we eat of the fruit, we shall surely die. And the punishment for sin is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin has to be judged. Sin has to be judged. God cannot just look the other way. He is holy. And so when we're saying that God's not imputing sin and that sin has been dealt with, it's not because God just decided, well, I think I'll just let it go. Look the other way. He paid a price for our sins. And He sent His Son... and. This is just mind-boggling. You can't even wrap your mind around it. But God became a man, suffered for 33 years. He didn't only suffer on the cross. He suffered for infinite God to become finite and dwell in a body and walk past people every day that He created. And they didn't even know Him. The anonymity, the feelings that that must have had to know that I created this person. And they treat me like I'm nobody. All of the things that Jesus went through for 33 years and then the suffering and then the shame and being spit in the face and mocked and everything. 
That was a huge price. And then the physical death. And, you know, the physical death, I don't mean to make light of that at all, what happened on the cross, but the spiritual suffering and the grief that he suffered like in the garden where he sweat great drops of blood. I've heard uh, doctors say that that is uh, symptomatic of a person's heart literally exploding. His heart was broken, not just in a symbolic way, but so much because of us that his heart broke and he sweat, as it were, great, great drops of blood. The suffering that Jesus went through, God would have never, ever have done that if there was any other way for salvation to come. But sin had to be judged. Sin had to be dealt with and it had to be judged by death. And since Jesus was God manifest in a human body, then His one life was worth more than the entire human race all put together with all of our ungodliness and unworthiness for eternity past to eternity present. His life was so holy and so pure. But see, people sometimes don't understand this and they just think that, well, God, you know... He just changed his mind. He's not that big a deal. He decided to not impute our sins unto us. That's not what he did at all. He imputed our sins unto Jesus. He paid every drop of blood that had to be paid for the sins of the human race. And the sin that is going to send people to hell is not their adultery and homosexuality and lying and stealing. Those sins have been forgiven. But if you, if, if you could understand this, and again, I could spend a week trying to make this point and amplify it. But if you could understand what I just said and the tremendous price that was paid, then you could understand why there is a hell. Because, see, some people say, well, this person never did commit homosexuality. They never did commit adultery. They never murdered anybody. How is it fair that they could be punished in the same hell that Adolf Hitler is in? This doesn't seem right. But that's because you think that it's your individual sins that send people to hell. That's not so. Your sins have been forgiven. The only sin that has not been forgiven, the only sin that's going to send people to hell is the sin of rejecting this huge, awesome price that was paid to forgive your sins. And if you reject Jesus, and if you just relegate Him, to, well, that's not important. I think later. And then you didn't accept the Lord. I guarantee you to reject God Almighty loving us so much that He came to this earth and became a man and died for you. There isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person for just rejecting Jesus. Whether it is out and out hatred and, and animosity towards Him or neglect. To neglect so great a salvation is a terrible thing. So if you understand it properly, man, there was this huge, huge problem that sin caused. But God paid the price. He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. And it is such a huge gift that for a person to reject it, I guarantee you there could be no other outcome. I was talking to a man one time who was saying that he just can't believe that their people are going to suffer forever. And I said, what would happen... If somebody came and killed your daughter that he loves with all of his heart, and I said, and man, the just thing to do is to kill them for what they did. But instead of giving them justice, you decide to go ahead and sacrifice yourself for them. 
And if you did that, such a great act of love, and then people just went ahead and ignored it and continued to do the same thing and ignored your great gift, I said, what would be the just thing? He says, man, he says, first of all, I don't love anybody enough to do that. But he says, man, if they rejected that, there would have to be consequences. And see, most people just don't look at this right. So anyway, I want to share some things with you. And hopefully, uh, we need to understand what we've been redeemed from. And we need to understand that hell is real. And that it is a real place and people are going there. And one reason that we see some things happening today is because people no longer have this concept. We had here in Colorado back in 99, these two boys that killed all of those people at uh, Columbine High School went in and then they killed themselves. And they had made statements about, you know what, rather than get caught and have to face what they'll do, and they'd just kill themselves and avoid all of the problems. That's because people don't believe in hell. Did you know back in the 1800s, early 1900s, nearly everybody had a gun. Many of them brought them to school when they were kids. But the difference was they had a fear of God. They recognized that when you die, that is not the end. You have just ushered yourself into an eternity. And because of that, it made people act differently. And that's one of the things that's missing in our society is most people do not believe in hell. I've seen surveys where even people that call themselves born-again Christians, there's less than 50% of quote-unquote born-again Christians that believe in an eternal hell. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So, I'm appalled sometimes at the things that people come up with and the things that they say, but you know, the Lord spoke to them and He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you want people to believe different, you need to teach on it. And I referred to hell, but I've never taught on it, so we're going to talk about hell tonight. Amen. And I've got every scripture in the Bible printed out on the subject of hell. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I just want to say that in the Old Testament, there's over 60 times that the word hell is referred to. It's actually this Greek word sheol, and I'm just going to say these things real quick. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because it would bore most of you. But if you're interested, it will answer some questions. The word sheol is translated hell 31 times. It's also translated grave 30 times, and it's the exact same word Nearly every time that it's translated grave, it's talking about the godly people when they die, where they go. When it's talking about the ungodly, it's called hell, but it's the exact same place. And you'll find out as you do a study of this that what actually happened, uh, it, it, it's talking about going into the midst of the earth. It's always spoken of as being in the lower parts. Matter of fact, this same word sheol is translated nether parts of the earth or the bottom parts of the earth. I think it's three or four times. And it's always talked about being as in the center of the earth. And this story that I'm going to read tonight out of Luke chapter 16 talks about that in hell and uh, that the rich man looked and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Both of those places were in the same place. And so anyway, here's the condensed version of what this means. In the Old Testament, everyone went into the center of the earth, a place called Sheol in the Hebrew, and it was separated into two compartments. One was called Abraham's bosom, or paradise was another word that was ascribed to it. And the other portion was called hell, and it was a place of torment. And 
Now, when Jesus died, He led captivity captive. He told the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And He took that thief to the portion of Sheol called Abraham's bosom, which was a place of blessing. And He set those people free from being uh, captive there and He led them to heaven. And today, Sheol only comprises the ungodly dead that were there. But before Jesus came, people were held in the center of the earth in a place of blessing, but still to where they could see the people in hell. And they were liberated, and now they're in heaven. And heaven is not going to last forever. When the Lord makes a new heaven and a new earth, He's literally, we are going to come and live on this earth. You do not live forever in heaven. You only live in heaven until the end of this age and then God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth and all of the believers are going to live here on the earth in a new Jerusalem, a new uh, glorified earth with all of the curse removed and everything. And hell is no longer going to be in the center of the earth, but it will be cast into a place that the Bible calls in the book of Revelation a lake of fire. So anyway, those for those of you that have wondered about some of that, that's my quick explanation of all of that. But in the New Testament, let me just turn over and get to the New Testament and say some things real quickly. There are people that believe that you just die and that there is nothing else. There are multiple scriptures talking about that. Jacob talked about he knew that he was going to live. Job is probably the oldest reference in the Bible to believing that there is an afterlife. And Job said, I could actually find this if I wanted to, but let me... Anyway, it's in the book of Job. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in my flesh shall I see God. Though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So there he spoke of him dying, worms destroying this body, and yet in his flesh, talking about a bodily resurrection, that they would see God. And then Jesus, he was quizzed in the New Testament and the people were the uh, Sadducees were people who did not believe in a bodily resurrection. They believed that this life was all that there was, and when you died, there was no afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) You can always remember that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. So anyway, they they were countering him, and they gave him this impossible thing that a man had... These uh, a man had a wife and he died. And according to the law, then the brother had to marry the wife and raise up children and call it by the first man's name. And so the first one died. His brother took his wife. He died without any children. And seven brothers had this woman and none of them were able to produce a seed. And so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And he was trying, they were trying to present the impossibility of all of this because what about people that had married multiple times. Who's going to be their wife in heaven? And they thought they had him stumped. And he said, you do err not knowing the scriptures because in heaven they don't marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage is an earthly institution. There isn't marriage in heaven. But then he went back and he quoted from when Moses saw God at the burning bush. And Jesus made this profound say. This is one of the simplest interpretations, and yet it silenced the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Everybody was amazed. They were just absolutely shocked at his answer. And here's what the Lord said. He says that when God spoke to Abraham out of the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac 
and of Jacob. And then Jesus interpreted it by saying, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God. And that simple interpretation Jesus used to show that they were still alive. At Jesus' transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared. They were there. They were alive. There's many scriptures that talk about life after death. So the people that believe that we just cease to exist is absolutely wrong. The scriptures teach that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, then you need to base your beliefs on what the Word of God says and not on what our society says because the vast majority of people do not believe that there is an afterlife. Most of the ungodly believe this is it and you're just gone and they don't have any consequences. And because there's no fear of God in them and they don't feel like they're ever going to have to answer, they can live like an animal because they just do not believe there's anything coming. That is absolutely wrong. And then there's other people that believe that God's going to give us a second chance. Purgatory is what the Catholic Church calls it. And you can pray a person out of purgatory and you can bribe God by giving indulgences to the church. That may sound a little harsh, but that has actually happened throughout the history of the Catholic Church. And that is absolutely not right. The, the uh, scriptures I'm going to use tonight and focus on will absolutely disprove that. And then there's people, a lot of them are grace people, that are preaching the goodness of God, which I believe in the goodness of God. He was so good that he paid my price. But I guarantee you, if I don't accept that payment, and I reject that payment... Well, then there is consequence to me rejecting so great a salvation. And yet there are grace people that teach that God ultimately is just such a God of love. I actually heard a guy one time interviewed who is the uh, head of the Satanist church in Houston, Texas. And they claimed that they believed the Bible. And this person interviewing him said, how can you claim to believe the Bible? And he says, the Bible says to love your enemy. Who is our enemy more than the devil? says we are supposed to love the devil and that there is going to be ultimate reconciliation and even the devil is going to be redeemed and, uh, and God is going to reconcile everything and nobody's going to stay in hell forever. There's people that teach that kind of stuff. That is not what the Word of God says. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures that talk about that there is no ultimate reconciliation. Right here in Revelation... Chapter 20, verse 13. This is talking about the very end of the age when everything comes to light and there is a judgment. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. If there was no hell, they couldn't deliver up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And there's other scriptures right around there that say that they will be tormented forever and ever in the presence of the Lord. And so anyway, there is no such thing as a purgatory and you get a second chance. There is a hell and there is no ultimate reconciliation of everyone. I believe that the sins of the whole world have been forgiven, but it says in John chapter 16 verse 8 that when the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove the world of sin Singular, and then verse 9 says, Of sin because they believe not on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Holy Spirit's job is not to convict you that you didn't study the Word, you didn't pray, you got mad, you did this, you did that. Jesus has forgiven all of those things. But the Holy Spirit convicts us of God's love for us and how He's done so great a thing. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The Holy Spirit's conviction is all around you accepting Jesus. All of this guilt and condemnation that you feel when you don't study the Word, when you don't do everything right, and you haven't prayed and dotted every I and crossed every T, is not the Holy Spirit. It's religion, and it's a misapplied conscience. Some of you disagree with that, and again, I'm talking as fast as I can trying to get to these Scriptures, but you've got to, that is the truth. I was raised in religion. I was taught that you went directly to hell if you danced. Some of you weren't taught that way, but I was. And one time in my life, I skipped a Wednesday night church service to go over to my girlfriend's house. And when I got there, there was other couples there, and they were dancing, and they taught me how to dance. And I tried it for 10 or 15 minutes and thought I was going straight to hell. I called my brother and asked him to come pick me up, and I was at church before the church service was over. I didn't even miss a whole church service. And some of you think, well, I, you know, and I honestly thought God was going to kill me. That wasn't God doing that. That was my religious teaching. I would not go, we called it mixed bathing because that sounded worse than mixed swimming. You couldn't go swimming where there was girls swimming because that was ungodly. I wouldn't do it. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. Because I was afraid I'd go to hell if I did. And some of you think, well, that's weird. But I'm telling you, your conscience is not a reliable guide. It can be corrupted. You can have a seared conscience. You can have an overactive conscience through religion. I remember the first time Jamie and I ever ministered in Austria. And we had about 150 people sitting at round tables and they served them lagers of beer and gave them free beer as long as I preached. It was one of the few times nobody cared how long I went. <laughs> they got free beer just as long as I talked. And that was hard on my little Baptist mind that thought that you went to hell for drinking beer. But did you know that in Austria, in Austria they drink beer like there's nothing to it, but Christians believe you go directly to hell if you drink coffee. It is against the law in the church in Austria to drink coffee and you go to hell. And I was looking at this and watching them drink beer and yet they wouldn't drink coffee. And I was thinking, and then we crossed the border over into Romania and in Romania they drink coffee and beer. But if you smoke a cigarette, you go to hell. And I just begin to realize, you know, some of this is not just automatic or God given. It's culture that does some of these things. And so... Um, Anyway, your conscience is what's condemning you. God's not condemning you. The only thing God convicts you about is have you made Jesus your Lord? And if you have, He's there to build you up and show you you're righteous and Satan has been judged. It's your religious conscience that's condemning you, not the Holy Spirit. What we've ascribed to the Holy Spirit is not the Holy Spirit at all. Let me turn over to Luke chapter 16 and let's look at this uh, passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. 
Let me just say, some people dismiss this as being a parable of Jesus. First of all, it says there was a certain rich man, so I am not sure that this is only a parable. It's possible that it's a parable, but let me say this. Jesus never taught anything wrong by using some comparison. He never made any wrong applications. So it really doesn't matter to me whether you uh, attribute this to a parable or not. Everything he's teaching here is accurate and real, and so we need to take heed to it. And this is some tremendous information here about hell. In Luke 16, 9, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of source. Notice it says was laid. This means that apparently somebody deposited him there. He didn't just place himself there. He may have been so sick and infirm that he had to have other people and they just threw him at the gate of this rich man hoping that he would have some mercy on him and and helping him. And so he was laid at the gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Notice he didn't want everything. He wasn't asking for equal treatment. He wasn't trying to impose. He only wanted the crumbs. He said, just let me pick up the scraps that fall from the table. It says, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Terrible situation. A man who was infirm couldn't deliver himself there. He had to be laid there. He was starving to death. He had sores and dogs were licking his sores. And this rich man had no mercy, no pity on him whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I can imagine this rich man really being put out by having this beggar around. I'm sure this rich man had a beautiful house. He had fancy clothes. He fared sumptuously. He's bound to have thrown parties and he always had this beggar there ruining his perfect little world but he never did show any mercy on him. And so it says in verse 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Boy, this is really interesting. You know, the world evaluates things differently than God does. We've made this point a couple of times with our directors that were up here. I believe that these are the heroes. These are people that we should be honoring. You can't give enough honor to people who give up their life Go to a third world country or, you know, Chicago could be considered a third world country. But they are giving their lives for the gospel and they're sacrificing. It takes a lot of effort to do ministry. And there's a lot of people that just criticize. And there's a lot of things. And these people are heroes. And yet in the world today, most people aren't going to hear about the directors of our school. Most people won't hear about Leland Shores. I'm going to do my part to put that tribute on nationwide, worldwide television and do things. But did you know still, the vast majority of people, they'll honor the people who are, can throw a ball through a hoop or can block or catch a ball or somebody who's an actor who has the integrity of a rat. And those are the ones that the world honors. And, we, and I can guarantee you this rich man's bound to have had a fancy funeral. I bet you he had the best casket. I bet they decked him out in fancy clothes. I bet he had lots of people there. And probably at his funeral, everybody was talking about, oh, wasn't this man wonderful? And didn't he do a lot? And look at his accomplishments. He probably had m- many, many people at his funeral. And yet, look how the Bible 
describes things. Boy, if you just noticed this when you read the Word, it would change things. It would change your values. We need our values different than this society we live in. It is perverted. And we need godly values. Look how it says that the beggar died and angels came and carried him. Man, God honored him. It was a great home going. It's like David saying, when you're in the grave, throw dirt on him. Don't feel sorry for him because even death can't separate him. Man, this beggar, he might have looked pitiful. I imagine he was probably just thrown over on the side of the road. He may have rotted and dogs have eaten his body. It doesn't even say that he was buried. And yet angels came and got him. And yet the rich man that all of the people honored, it just says he was buried. It doesn't matter what pomp and circumstance people gave him. He was putting a hole in the ground and he's rotten. I tell you what, I just, I love the way the Word of God sets people's thinking straight. You know, I'm not against any person. I don't like, let's say just for instance, Michael Jackson. I don't know this guy. I don't know who he was. Praise God, I hope he was saved. But there's not any indication that I can see. And yet people went through all of this stuff to honor Him. Unless I don't understand the truth, and I hope I'm wrong, but you know what? I don't think God honored Michael Jackson. I don't think that heaven sent angels to gather Him. We were there when Princess Di died. And the, the fuss that they made over her was just unbelievable. We were in England when all that happened. And we saw it. And you know, there was a Baptist pastor that a kid in their church asked a Baptist pastor in England, said, did Princess Di go to heaven? And he says, well, I don't know. It depends on whether or not she accepted Jesus. And he said, I don't know if she accepted Jesus. And they said, well, what happens if she didn't? And he said, she'd go to hell. And we were there and it had it on the front of the paper in England in big letters, Baptist pastor says, Princess Di in hell. And I mean, they wanted to literally put this guy in jail, do something to him. And it was absolutely the truth, what he said. It was right on. And yet there's some people that, oh, but she was such a beautiful person. And, oh, I saw her wedding. And she, uh, you know, helped people that had been hurt by landmines. How could she go to hell? If she didn't accept Jesus, that is the only payment for her sin. She can't atone for her sin by trying to make up the bad with the good. And if she didn't accept Jesus, she's in hell. I don't know that she is. I hope that she's not. But I know that she consorted with, um, uh, uh, what is it, a soothsayer, somebody, palm reader, right before she died over there in Paris. If they were really able to predict the future, it seems like they should have told her not to go through that tunnel. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, we honor these people and we just think, oh, and you are totally missing the point. The rich man was buried. He just rotted in the grave. But the person who is despised by people was honored by God. God sees things differently than people do and we would be well served to change our opinion so it matches God instead of going with the values of this world. Man, that is powerful truth right there. And in hell, it says in verse 23, In hell the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Boy, there is so much in this. I'm talking as fast as I can and I'm running out of time. You need to see this, that this man had eyes. Now his physical body, his physical eyes were in the grave, rotting, and yet in his soulish man he could see. There is so much to gain from this. But you can see that in your soulish person, you can see, you can hear, you can thirst, you can feel heat. I'm going a little bit out on a limb here, but as we go through this, you'll see that this man basically had every sensation that he still had when he was in his physical body. His mind still remembered. He could feel grief. He could feel sorrow. He could feel compassion. He had realization of how he had missed it. He was absolutely functional just as much as when he had a physical body. And what happens, the scripture says over in James chapter 2, verse 26, as, as, faith, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What happens to you at death is your spirit goes to the afterlife and according to uh, Revelation chapter 6, it says they saw the souls of them that were under the altar who had been slain for their testimony. So you can see by combining those two scriptures that your soul and spirit go to be with the Lord if you were born again. If they don't, your soul and your spirit go to hell. And apparently your soul is a perfect mirror of your physical body. You got eyes, ears, feeling, memory, thoughts, all of these kind of things. Matter of fact, I've... I, this is, again, a supposition. I can't say this based on Scripture, but I've heard people that have a leg amputated and yet they can still feel their toes. People have had things amputated. I believe that your soul is just inside of here because, again, in Revelation chapter 6, they recognized people by their soul. Their soul was recognizable. That means that your soul must look pretty much like you look because you can recognize a person's soul, not just their body. So this has given us some great insight here. Jesus is the one that's saying this and he's telling us how this works. So this man lifted up his eyes, being in torments. He felt this. He was tormented. And this passage doesn't make this point, but there's other passages that talk about us being separated for eternity from God. And even though I'm not trying to diminish the physical torments and pain and flames and things like that, I think the worst part of hell is being separated from goodness. There is going to be nothing good. You know, people sometimes, I've heard people before say, well, this is hell right here on this earth. Give me a break. Mercy. People that say that don't have a clue what hell is going to be like. I'm not saying that everything in this life is perfect, but... I, re I hadn't got time to give that story, but I could give you some stories that would show you that I believe that the worst part of hell is going to be separated from good, no hope of anything ever changing. Never. Damned for eternity. And not only that, but you are going to be surrounded by other people, vile people who have been separated, and this is just going to amplify and mushroom, and the ungodliness. We talk about how ungodly our society is, but we were dealing with Gary Everett, who's a friend of ours who lived in Uganda for, I think, it's 14 years, and he's going over to help us with that situation. He and Wendell left last night, and he was saying that, you know, even though 
America has a lot of things that even the lost people in this nation have a Judeo-Christian ethic. And many of you may not understand what I'm saying, but you go to places where the gospel has not dominated, and I guarantee you, America, as bad as we are in many ways, it's the best thing afloat that I've seen as I've traveled the world. And there is godliness even among ungodly people in America. But when you get to hell, there will be zero good. There will be nothing good. You will be separated. There will never be any kindness ever. There will never be anybody doing anything good. All that will remain is ungodliness. I can't even wrap my brain around what that's going to be like. But that is what the Scriptures teach us, that you will be separated from God forever. And so he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off. One of the things about hell is that they are able to perceive what the godly are experiencing, and they will have a contrast. They'll be able to see the people who are basking in the blessing of God versus their absolute terrible situation. Man, we can only imagine what that's going to be like for eternity. So he saw Abraham, he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried. So he had a voice. Your soul has a voice. You can communicate in hell. You are going to hear all kinds of communications and there won't be any good communication. Everything will be vile. Nothing but vile communications forever. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He pled for mercy. And what was the result? No mercy. There is no second chance. There is no purgatory. There is no ultimate reconciliation. And yet, notice this, that he instantly, he had been a God rejecter. He rejected God's things, but in hell, he instantly knew the truth. The scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13, that uh, we will know all things, even as also we are known. People that go to hell will understand every single thing they did wrong, every foolish thing they did to reject God how they chose ungodliness over loving God, and it will torment them throughout eternity. They are going to know all things. They're going to plead for mercy, and there will be none. This is amazing. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. Here's a soul that had a finger. That he would dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He was dying of thirst, but he couldn't die. He was burning in flames. This isn't just heat, flames. He felt the pain of flames, and yet there was. No, it couldn't kill him. He was tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember. Boy, here's another terrible thing about hell, is that you will remember everything. You'll remember every rotten decision, every stupid thing that you ever did. He says, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted. Heaven for us is going to be an awesome place. But you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thither. In other words, there is no way out. There's a great gulf. There is no, it's physically impossible. You can't bridge this gap. 
There is no way out. There is no purgatory. Nobody can pray you out. Nobody can pay you out. There is no ultimate reconciliation. It's, it's finished. It's over. And look at this in verse 27. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that, they may te- that he may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. So here's another thing about hell, is that not only are you going to be tormented and have all of these things in memories, but in hell he had compassion on people who were still alive and he didn't want anybody to experience what he was experiencing. And you know what? This is another thing I think that's going to torment people in hell is when they see the way that people are living and living their life like there is no accountability and there isn't a God who created us, that we're just an evolved animal and the people in hell are tormented by this. I tell you, this is a great passage of Scripture to use at a funeral for an ungodly person. It's hard to comfort people when they think that somebody has gone to hell. But you know what you can do? You could at least say that I can guarantee you what this person would be saying if they could talk to us today. They would say that they've missed it. And their message would be to plead with every one of you to accept the Lord and avoid this place. That's the only way that you can redeem a person going to hell is to motivate us to go to heaven. And here's Abraham's answer. He said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if uh, one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You know, there are people today that are always looking for something like, Man, if we could just find Noah's Ark and prove it then people would believe. And if we could, you know, they're always trying to come up with scientific, some scientific thing. I have people send me things about they've done studies that when a person dies, they have them on a scale and, uh, you know, they can feel, an, uh, I mean, there is a weight loss. And this is proof that there was a spirit man, a soul inside. And they're always trying to do something that will cause people to believe. Quantum mechanics, quantum science. I've heard so many people talk about this. And this proves all of the things in the Bible. And they're so excited because this is going to make people believe. If they don't believe what the Word of God says, they will not believe though somebody rose from the dead and came and told them. Many people in here probably say, no, I don't think that's so. That's because you aren't thinking according to what the Bible says. You cannot be born again. You can't be argued into the truth. The Bible says it has to come by revelation. It says that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Science, arguments, I don't care what people come up with, it it will not get a person born again. They have to have the seed of God's Word planted in them. It's just like a child. It doesn't come by the stork. It doesn't come by drinking the water after somebody who's pregnant. There's only one way you get pregnant, and that's to have a seed planted. You cannot be born again separate from the Word of God. And we're trying all of these other things and hoping that this will happen and somebody will do something to reach these people. It's the Word of God that's going to change people. And so, that's the reason that people don't come back 
from the dead and just preach and do all of these things and get everybody saved. It doesn't work that way. The Word of God is how God has chosen. He said, by the foolishness of preaching, He has chosen to save those who believe. And that's just the way that God set it up and there is no other thing. But one of the things in hell is going to be the torment about thinking about all of the people who are coming to that place. All of the people that they have misled and misinformed. I think of some of the great atheists in history. Voltaire mocked and ridiculed Christianity and said that within a hundred years of his death, Christianity would be a part of history, that Christianity would be stamped out because they were the age of enlightenment. And they were going to do that. And it was just really poetic justice that on the hundred years from the day he said that, in his house, they had a printing press that started printing Gutenberg Bibles. And he was absolutely wrong. And it didn't come to pass. And he died. And he's in hell listening to me right now, agonizing over the stupid things that he said and the millions of people he influenced and the ungodliness that he put out. Hell is a real place. And again, I know that there's some people just say, how can a loving God do this? Well, it says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, let me just read this scripture to you quickly. This is Jesus giving a parable about people who thought that they were good because they had done good things, but they never had done what He told them to do. They, they hadn't put faith in Him. And I'm breaking right into the middle of it. But in verse 40 it says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have not, inasmuch as thou, um, as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire again, there are many scriptures like this that if you just stop it and, and look at it, it's everlasting fire. This isn't just a temporary thing until everybody's paid for their sins. You can't pay for rejecting God and denying God. You might be able to pay for you spitting in somebody's face or insulting somebody or getting a divorce, but there is no payment for rejecting Jesus. This is everlasting fire. Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God did not create hell and everlasting fire for people. He created it for Satan, for the devil and his angels. It was never God's intention for man. This wasn't God's plan. He warned us and told us not to eat of the tree of life. He told us not to do this. God didn't start all of this death. We did. And I guarantee you, there has to be an accounting for it. Praise God for those who've accepted Jesus. See, on the cross, Jesus paid this price. for It was a huge price. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We deserve to die. And there's a lot of people today that think, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a really bad person. I don't deserve to, be, to die. I don't deserve to be rejected. Every one of us deserves to be rejected by God. There is not a single person in here that deserves anything from God. And if you're offended by that, then that's the offense of the cross. And that's the reason it's not working for you is because you're still maintaining your own righteousness. You're focused on yourself instead of on Jesus. You've got to come to a place that you recognize that, man, we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. It was beyond our ability 
The only payment is eternal damnation. And God loved us so much, He sent His Son Jesus to take your damnation. He suffered all of your payment. And He went to hell. And I know that this is offensive to people and people say, oh, are you one of those that believe Jesus died in hell and did all this stuff? I don't know all the details of it, but it says in Ephesians chapter 4, John, uh, uh, Psalms chapter 16, Acts chapter 2, that He descended into hell. I don't know if He stayed there a minute, a second. It wouldn't matter. He was so holy. He suffered our payment that if He suffered for one second, it was enough to redeem all of the human race. I don't know the details of it and don't argue with me over it. But I'm telling you that Jesus suffered everything that I was supposed to suffer and He suffered everything you were supposed to suffer and He redeemed us from a great thing. And if you could ever get an understanding of this, it would eliminate your pride, your arrogance. It would eliminate your condemnation because the truth is, yes, you aren't who you should be. None of us are who we should be. I'm not who I should be. I'm failing God. I'm not doing things as perfectly as I should. But Jesus paid for it. Not only the things I did up until the time I accepted Him, but He paid for all of my future sins. He paid for it. And because such a great price was paid, my transgressions are insignificant compared to the atonement made. And because of that, I don't have to live in condemnation even though I know I'm not what I should be. Now, that doesn't make me complacent. I'm wanting to be better because I don't want Satan to just have access to me. So I limit his access. I live as holy as I can. I seek God as much as I can. But I do not live in condemnation because Jesus paid it all on the cross. The cross totally set me free. And there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And I tell you what, we need to be aware of this. And many people today have lost sight of what they were redeemed from so they don't put the value on it. And that's why they think that somehow they can add to it because they've never seen the hopelessness of man's condition. And this is a vast overstatement in summary, but just real quickly, basically this is what the Old Testament was all about. For the people who thought they were good enough and they were comparing themselves among themselves and saying, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good and God's going to have to accept me. You know why God gave the law? Not to show you what you had to do to save yourself, but He gave you a standard that was so far beyond your ability, showed you the perfect holiness of God that it would make self-righteous people just throw themselves on the mercy of God and say, Oh God, if this is what you demand, have mercy on me, a sinner. The purpose of the law was to show you your ungodliness and to bring you to the end of yourself. And yet religion today just takes little bits and pieces here and uses the law to manipulate and, and dangle in front of you that if you could just be holy, God would do this for you. And I'm telling you, you cannot do it. You cannot keep the law. You cannot do everything right. It was never intended to help you do everything right. It was intended to amplify your sin and make sin through the commandment exceedingly sinful is what it says in Romans chapter 7. It made sin come alive on the inside of you. 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, where is that? That's Romans chapter 7 also, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. It's the strength of sin. And on and on I could go. The law was given to show you your ungodliness, to show you your eternal future and how you deserve to be damned so that you would quit promoting your self-goodness 
and trying to please God by your actions and instead you would receive salvation as a gift. You'd put faith in a Savior. And one reason more people aren't committed to the grace of God is because they're still under the deception that somehow or another you're good enough that God owes it to you. The law is made for you to show you your ungodliness. And we need to recognize that there's a punishment. We've been redeemed from a great thing. And if you could understand this, our priorities would change. We wouldn't be putting all of our effort into just taking care of this carnal life. We would think about the future. You need to be conscious of your future, your godly future, but also we need to be conscious of what a great thing we've been saved from. And that would also put an importance on us ministering to other people and sharing with other people because they only get a chance to respond here in this life. Hell is real. Heaven is real. What Jesus did completely delivered us from hell and we ought to be thanking and praising God and spending every breath and everything we've got to serve Him and give Him our thanks, not because He's demanding it or He won't answer our prayer, but just out of gratitude and out of love for other people so that we could help them. I tell you, we need to understand these things. So I have now preached a message on hell. And anybody who accuses me of preaching universalism or whatever, I'm going to give this to them and say, listen to this. Amen. It's not true. Praise God. You know, let me just say, it's time for you to go get your kids. That's not what I really wanted to say, but, but it is time for you to go get your kids. But let me say, if there's anybody here who's not born again, man, you need to be born again. And maybe you've just not dealt with this and you've not confronted it because you didn't want to confront it. You just thought you were too good of a person. I pray that the Holy Spirit would take what I said and help you to recognize that you need a Savior. It's not based on whether you go to church. Going to church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage would make you a car. If you're a car, you ought to get in a garage for your own protection. If you're a church, if you're a Christian, you need to go to church. But going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You have to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here who has never done that, man, it would be a shame for you to hear this message and ignore it. It's not your individual sins that would send you to hell. It's the sin of you thinking, I don't need Jesus. I can do it by myself. I'm so good. That'll send you to hell. You need a Savior. And if you're already born again, you also need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. Is there anybody here tonight that say, I need one or both of those and I'd like to receive? And you'd want us to pray for you. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Here's somebody back here. Praise God. Anybody else? We've had 70 or more people receive the baptism and maybe a dozen or so born again, but man, don't want to miss anybody. Here's somebody over here. Praise God. Anybody else? You know, if you don't speak in tongues, you ought to have your hand in the air. You need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And some people think, well, I got that when I got saved. I had not got time to explain this, but the Bible does teach a separate experience. And speaking in tongues is a part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not all that there is, but it's a part of it. You need to receive it. Anybody in here that doesn't have that gift, you need this in order to be able to, to live the life that God wants you to live. Here's another one. You know, if you raised your hand, or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your chair and come forward and we want to pray with you and help you to receive 
what you need from God here tonight. Come forward right now and let us pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. There's more coming forward than raise their hands. Some of you just wouldn't raise your hand, but the Holy Spirit was dealing with you. That's great. Anyone else? You know, if you need salvation, some of you might think, well, I'm just going to receive, but I don't want to go forward. We aren't making you join anything. I'm going to give you a free book. We aren't going to ask anything. We're going to give. But Jesus did say that if you don't confess Him before men, He won't confess you before His Father. You can't just make a mental decision. You have to believe it enough to act on it and make this public. You need to publicly confess Jesus as your Lord. Anybody else here that needs to come forward? Thank you, Jesus. All right, before we can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all need to be born again. Is there anybody here who's not absolutely sure about whether or not you've been born again? The Bible says all you have to do, Jesus has already paid for your sins. He's already done it. All you've got to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. And that's more than just say the words. You've got to believe it in your heart. So you have to literally make a commitment that I'm turning my life over to you. My faith is completely in what you did for me and not what I do for you. You can't keep it perfectly, but you have to be willing to make that commitment. Is there anybody here who's never done that? If you haven't done that, I need to pray with you first before you could receive the Holy Spirit. Anybody? Everybody sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it. You just got to be sure. And there's a lot of people today that they're just kind of hoping, well, I think so. Man, you need to know so. Anybody, are you, you want to pray and make sure that you've made Jesus your Lord? Anybody else? Here's another one. Here's another one. I tell you, this is too important. You can't assume. The Bible says that when you get born again, you have a witness in yourself And you know that you've passed from death unto life. It's not a hope so thing. You know that you've been changed. And if you don't have that knowing on the inside, then you need to pray and receive Jesus as your Savior. Anybody else besides these three? What I'm going to do, I'm going to lead you in this prayer that Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says you should do. You should confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and the Bible says you shall be saved. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer similar to the things that you need to say. And I'd like you to repeat this after me. And if you will say these words and believe them in your heart, then based on what the Word of God says, I believe you'll be saved and you'll be changed right now. Isn't that awesome? Jesus has already dealt with your sins. It's not a matter of will He forgive you. It's all about will you make Him your Lord? Will you receive Him? So I'd like everybody to repeat this after me. Just say this. Say, Father... I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus died to forgive my sin. 
and I receive that forgiveness. Jesus, I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen. You believe that? Welcome to the family, brother. Awesome, awesome. Awesome. Welcome to the family. Praise God. And you pray that too, huh? You believe you're saved? Amen. Isn't that awesome? Now, according to the Word of God, every one of you, the Bible says that when you make Jesus your Lord, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means that He created you to put His Holy Spirit inside. So this is what God created you for. There is no doubt that God will give you the Holy Spirit. And if you understood what I've been teaching, no sin or failure on your part would keep God from giving you the Holy Spirit. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. If you have a problem in your life, that makes you a prime candidate for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So don't let any sense of unworthiness or something make you think that God wouldn't do this. This is what He created you for. So we're just going to ask one time and give God the permission to come into your life. He doesn't force Himself upon you. So we're just going to open up the doors of our temple and welcome the Holy Spirit. And then I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come up here and stand behind you and lay hands on you because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. You can literally release the Holy Spirit into people by the laying on of hands. So we're just going to pray a simple prayer and welcome the Holy Spirit. Then these people are going to stand behind you and release the power of the Holy Spirit into you. And then I want you to quit asking. There's a time to ask, but there's a time to start thanking Him and believe that He did what He promised He would do. So after they lay hands on you, I want you to quit asking and just start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what you feel like. When I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. But man, I got the power of the Holy Spirit and it changed my life. So we're going to ask. They're going to lay hands on you. And then I want you to start thanking God. And at that time, after they lay hands on you, I want you to lift your hands like this. It's a way of surrender. It's like when somebody sticks a gun in your back. And you go, I surrender. It's a way, the Bible says when you lift up your hands, this blesses God. So we're going to pray, they're going to lay hands on you, you're going to start thanking Him, and then the Bible says when you pray in tongues, you're giving thanks in a heavenly language, 1 Corinthians 14, 17. So we are all going to start speaking in tongues and thanking God with this prayer language for Him giving you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to switch over from thanking God in English to thanking Him in tongues. You bypass all of the confusion and doubt that's in your mind and you pray straight out of your spirit. It's a powerful thing. So that's what we're going to do. You ready? You are going to speak in tongues. The Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer. And I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you for these that prayed and received salvation. And our faith is in you. We believe that they are now a new creature. That in their spirit, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That all of these are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So right now, we just open up the doors of our temple. And Holy Spirit, we invite you in. We welcome you to come into our life. We want your power. We want your strength. We want these gifts of the Holy Spirit, this gift of speaking in tongues. So we welcome you now and ask you to come in. 
We lay hands on you in the name of Jesus and we say receive the Holy Spirit. We loose this power to flow into your life right now in Jesus' name. Praise God. Right here is the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. I believe it's burning up wrong thoughts and attitudes, purifying your heart, that the Holy Spirit is beginning His work in you even right now. Father, we receive this. Now let's put your hands up and start thanking God out loud. Talk out loud and thank Him for giving you the Holy Spirit. Father, we believe that we do have the Holy Spirit. We believe that we are now God-possessed, filled with Your power, and that Your anointing is flowing in us right now. Thank You, Jesus that we have the Holy Spirit. Now those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's begin to worship the Lord and speak in tongues so that these won't feel like we're listening to them. And as we speak in tongues, you just pray with us right now. Switch from speaking in English to speaking in tongues. The number one mistake that people make is they think the Holy Spirit's going to force you to talk in tongues. He doesn't force you. You have to speak. Acts 2, 4 says they spoke as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You have to make sounds and by faith believe that God is giving this to you. So you've got to start speaking. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear the person behind you say. But your tongue will be unique to you. You can't say what they're saying, but it'll get you to talking. And once you start, don't quit. Just keep going. Don't worry about what it sounds like. Thank you, Jesus. Let's worship God. Y'all just agree with us and stretch your hand this way and let's pray. These people need to operate in this gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't speak in tongues with your mouth closed. You've got to open your mouth and talk. You can't talk in tongues in English at the same time. Don't worry about what it sounds like. People are always trying to say, is this, a, is this just me or is it the Holy Spirit? I've actually heard languages that were whistles, clicks of the tongue. Don't try and figure it out. Just let your heart, your spirit man, pray to God and bypass the doubt and the confusion that's in your brain. It's powerful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you. Man, just let this flow. Man, most of you, most of these are praying in tongues. Praise God. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You don't know what's happening, but I tell you, this is powerful. It's really, really powerful. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. You know, whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe God gave you the Holy Spirit because He has a promise and He says, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, He'll give Him to you. So I believe God did it. When I first prayed, in, prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues, but it's because I was a Baptist. And I was so fearful that I was going to do something by myself without the Holy Spirit. I've been taught that this was of the devil and things like that. And it just hindered me. And it took me three years to speak in tongues after I first received the Holy Spirit. 
But you know, I finally got my questions answered and I've written a book that will answer your questions. It'll also explain salvation for those of you that prayed for salvation and it'll help you to understand. But what happened to you tonight is more powerful than what any of you know. I promise you that. But you've got to understand it to get the full benefit of it. And this book will explain it to you. So I would like to give every one of you a free book. And we all, this is Robert right here in the center aisle in the blue shirt with his Bible up. And Robert, if you'll follow him, we've got a room. We're going to give you a free book that will explain it. There's also people there that if you have any questions, if you want prayer or any way we can help you, they want to help you. We just want you to get the full benefit out of what happened. Amen? So if you would, for just a moment, let's follow Robert right here. And he'll give you that book and help you. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this awesome? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. That's great. Amen. Praise God. You know, I chose to minister on these passages about hell tonight because I wanted to end tomorrow night on a more positive note. But you know, I think that this was really important tonight. I really do. And there's many of you that probably say, oh, I believe in hell and yet you couldn't defend it. Matter of fact, one of my very good friends taught a message on hell and said that the hell wasn't hardly mentioned in the Old Testament. And man, I went and looked these up and there's like 60 or 70 references and very clear references. And this is a guy who's a very capable minister and yet he had missed it somehow or another. You know what? A lot of people just don't understand. You need to be able to defend your faith. And if you don't, well then some of this logic that I tried to counter tonight could compromise. And I think that it's important for us to understand what a great salvation we have. You can't fully appreciate what Jesus did unless you understand what He redeemed us from. It would like if a person gives you a gift and they gave you a gift and you say, oh, well, thank you. But you didn't know that it was $10 million that they gave you. You've got to understand the value of the gift before you can fully appreciate it. And I think that a lot of people, because we haven't emphasized this, especially people that preach grace haven't fully appreciated our salvation. So I think that this was good, and I think it's going to be beneficial to people. If you have needs for anything, I know we saw hundreds of people healed this afternoon, but if you say this is your only service, or if you need prayer, these are our prayer ministers. We're here to help you any way we can. So if you need prayer for anything, just come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers minister to you. The rest of you remember that we have CDs and DVDs of all of the services up to this point already made. And they are available out there along with all of our other product and stuff. Dave Hinton has his CDs back there, I think. Does he? And so does Arthur. And all of our ministers have materials back there. So please take advantage of it. I think this week has been awesome. Amen. If you need prayer for anything, come forward right now. The rest of you, thanks for coming. You're dismissed. We will see you in the morning at 9 o'clock.